Therapy with My Mom is an educational podcast meant to entertain and provide individual perspectives to our listeners. This podcast is in no way a substitute for professional counseling. If you are in need of mental health services, please reach out to a professional in your area. This podcast may also cover sensitive topics or involve triggering words about death, loss, and trauma. Please use your own discretion when listening to this podcast and consider whether the topic being discussed is something you are ready to fully explore. Welcome to Therapy with My Mom, a podcast hosted by a mother and son who love each other very much. Aw, hi, I'm Julie Barkowskis. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, a certified addictions counselor, as well as a somatic experiencing practitioner. I've been providing therapy on an outpatient basis in my private practice for over 20 years. I'm Ryan Barkowskis, her son and a millennial that was graced with having two parents who are both social workers. This podcast is here to educate our listeners on the various aspects surrounding mental health. Our guests will include individuals who are going to share personal stories on mental health struggles, as well as professionals who can shed light on the array of therapeutic approaches. We hope you enjoy the journey with us. Welcome to our show. Well, Mom, I am. Uh, I'm thankful you brought on another amazing guest for us today. Um, as is the purpose of this podcast, maybe someone to help diagnose me, tell me if there's something going on <laughs> with Ryan. You know, <laughs> we might help diagnose some people we know. <laughs> yeah, true. We won't name names. Uh, or, you know, breach any confidentiality. And of course, I say that in jest. It's just because we have uh, an amazing professional with us today. Um, the leading kind of lecturer and professional on personality disorders, Greg Lester. Hey, Greg. Hi. <laughs> yes, I'm here. Audience, <laughs> audience is applauding. Yes. Yeah, uh, yeah, right. Yeah, everyone in their cars are openly applauding and people are standing in their chairs. Uh, I, no, I appreciate you having me on because it's a, a poorly understood area. And it's always nice for people to understand it and be familiar with it. Because even, yeah. even in the... Uh, psychology and profession it is it is not widely understood so it's very nice of you guys to have me on so that people can uh, get a feel for it yeah and it's very nice for you to be on with us thank you <laughs> yes thank you um for anyone who maybe doesn't know greg lester's name uh you know we say he's the leading professional on this because he has taught thousands of lectures uh about personality disorders to other professionals um and i also saw that your office was instrumental in working on like the DSM five revisions for personality disorders. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. My dubious claim to fame is I've uh, trained more people on this than anyone in history. I've done well over 2000 trainings, about 250,000 professionals. And uh, my office was involved in the uh, research mm -hmm. for the revision of the personality disorder section for the latest diagnostic manual. They did some of the studies at my office and wow. I worked with the New York State Psychiatric Group and University of uh, Tennessee and um, a variety of other places where we did uh, about 10 years of research for the revision of the manual. Yeah, that's a lot of research. Wow. Oh, it was a lot of research. We had a, a, a lot of uh, and then they did a lot of uh, clinical trials at major institutions like Baylor and Menegers. Cornell. It was an extensive process. And we studied 18 different models 
to find the best way to think about these. <clears throat> yeah, they did. It was very thorough. Uh, the committee was yeah. did a very good job. That's good. Yeah, I imagine when you are working on something as important as the DSM, like obviously you want to make sure you're thorough. You're trying to make sure you're doing it right. Yeah, you know, the DSM gets criticism, some valid, some not. But the bottom line is it isn't stupid. And it's the <laughs> best in the science we have currently. And the personality disorder section has been pretty consistent since it started in the DSM-3 in 1980. So we think our model's pretty good because we've got about 40 years of research and experience uh, backing it. So we, we feel pretty good about how it is so far. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, before we get into getting to know Le uh, Greg, I was about ready to call you Lester. That's <laughs> <laughs> usually a first name. Lester, right, so Greg. Last name. <laughs> before we get to know Greg, uh, I was wondering if we could do a little warm up hmm. and mm -hmm. do my little segment here called If You Were. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. So if you Why were. ominous? <laughs> Why put the <laughs> ominous music on it? It's fun. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> That's a part of my personality. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm doing something strange. So, um, so it, this one is just hopefully fun. Uh, if you were one of the Star Wars characters, who would you be and why? <laughs> and it could be anybody on any of the Star Wars uh, movies, shows. Okay. So this is a fun one. If you guys, if one of you guys know right away, go ahead. You, I, I'll, Greg, if you got it, or Ryan, if you got it, <laughs> either way. Sure. Be but, Darth Vader because then you're free of any restraints of any morality or any concerns, right. and you can do any darn thing you want and be okay with it. And that is not how <laughs> I feel. So that would be completely opposite. So that'd be kind of fun. Uh huh. To have absolutely no sense of morality, right and wrong, and be able well, to do anything to anyone, anytime. That'd be kind of do you fun. Know that, do you know that Dark Vader a had a reason why he did that? And you know that Dark Vader also changed mm -hmm. in the end. That's true. Mm -hmm. So there so was. So he redemption. went from a personality disorder into yeah. a repair. Disorder. He went from a psychopath, <laughs> right? Yeah. Right. Oh, interesting. All right. I, so I don't know. I think that's kind of that, interesting. Yeah. Greg wants to explore his dark side. Is that's right. We're, we're learning. That's what I do it. Cheat every day. I might as well take it on once in a while. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think I might be at Han Solo. Hmm. Famous, famous smuggler and kind of you know uh, want to be like he's he's got a great shot and he's kind of a womanizer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not that that matters. Good, lucky <laughs> with the that girls. That no, but he's got a good. He's got no, a good name no, for himself. No, you know? I didn't. <laughs> That's good. I like that. Yeah. What about you, Mom? I am an Ewok. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Uh they're fun loving. Yes. They're social. Mm -hmm. They're community oriented, and they're just adorable. <laughs> yes, they are that. That's the big <laughs> takeaway I took when I saw the Star Wars movies. It was like, wow, that community of Ewoks is really, it's really strong. Yeah, oh, they were so cute. Their family systems are so very strong and developed. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Well, I'm that. pounding you, on the desk here right now. So <laughs> <laughs> that was funny. Well, it was what? fun, Mom. Good job. Yeah. Hey, thank you. So uh, <laughs> now, so we'll move on to. Hey, Greg, can you hmm. tell us a little bit about your background, how you ended up getting into this line of work? 
and uh, let people know, get to know you a little bit more. I know we did a little bit, but if you could add. Right. Well, yeah. So I'm a psychologist. I'm licensed in Colorado and Texas. I've been in practice for about 40 years. I didn't have this much gray hair when I started. I originally went to college to make movies because I I made a movie in high school that won an award, state award. So I thought, oh, I want to be a movie maker. Went to college and found out that was not the right place for me. So I um, looked around for another career (laughs) because I was lost. And that was the year that the book I'm Okay, You're Okay came out and introduced Mm -hmm. transactional analysis. Mm -hmm. And I read that and and it was an instantaneous knowledge that this is what I needed to do. I mean, it changed in a heartbeat. So at the time, clinical psychology was the second hardest thing to gain admission to in the country after veterinary school, believe it or not, 300 applicants for every opening. So it took me two years because I didn't have a major in psychology, but I I got into graduate school to a doctoral program, a very good one, very clinically oriented. So some are more research oriented, some are more patient. We were very clinically oriented. So I went to graduate school and then uh, did an internship at what at the time was the best internship in the country, the University of Minnesota Health Sciences Center, because they developed something called the MMPI. It's kind of our standard test. Mm-hmm. Just a little, little something. Yeah. Just a little in something. fact, my office mate was the grandniece <laughs> of Stark Hathaway, who was one of the uh, authors of the MMPI. Wow. And, and then, uh, yeah, no, she was very, very good. And then I moved to Houston and I worked at a, a social service agency, United Way Agency, for several years in the family counseling department. They were social workers. They never had a psychologist. So I did lots of evaluations and things like that. And in doing so, my dissertation had been on depression. So I had a specialty in mood disorders. I did find, however, that treating a lot of mood disorders was pretty uh, depressing. and It wasn't mm-hmm. a lot of fun. And I found that I had a knack for very difficult cases that people are having trouble with, and no one knew what to call or what to do with. Mm-hmm. Um, the DSM-3 had just come out in 1980, the year I got my PhD, and it was the first manual to define something called personality disorder. And it was considered so different and distinct from everything else, depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, bipolar, that they actually put it in a whole different category called Axis 2. So nobody paid any attention to it. So what happened was that I started getting called in as a consultant on all these cases where the client was oppositional and defiant and demeaning and rageful and everything. And I had kind of a thing where I could uh, tell people what to do that would work, but it was nothing I've been trained in. Then one day I was in our uh, agency library and pulled out a book by an analyst by the name of James Masterson from New York City called The Personality Disorders. I had never heard of them. Mm. And I read the book and he was doing what I was doing. And so I said, well, this sounds like the thing that I need to be involved in. So I started studying the DSM-3 axis too and realized that these were the cases that for some reason I really enjoyed working with. Mm -hmm. And that was in 1984. So I started specializing in them uh, in the middle 80s and then went into private practice um, and became known around for um, for specializing in this population. And then in the late 90s, I was contacted by a training company who wanted to do some mental health training, some seminars. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, we've heard of you. 
And we think, you know, we like your resume. What, what do you want to do a seminar on? I'm like, what? I said, well, my thing is personality disorders. And mm-hmm. they said, we've never heard of that, but it sounds pretty interesting. Why don't you work up a seminar? So I started doing that and it went wild because there was no one teaching this. And right now in the in the world, there are about six people who teach this. That's about it. Wow. That's and wild. so I would go out for a week at a time and do you know, like three days of seminars. And we had three and four hundred professionals come every day because oh, yeah. everybody was having trouble with them and nobody knew what to do. And nobody had been trained in it because when they created access to it kind of shunted us off to the side of the world. Uh, so. People who specialize in this are not well known in the rest of the mental health world. There are very few places to specialize in. Mm. Anna Freud does a nice job in London. Menninger's in at Baylor is well known. Marshall Linehan at the University of Washington with dialectical behavior therapy. Um, but there aren't a lot of other places. New York State Psychiatric or Robert Spitzer was does a good job. But otherwise, we're not well known. Mm-hmm. And so I got I got widely known for training in this and ended up. Uh, doing training in 132 cities, every major city in the U.S., Canada. I got taken to Australia to teach down there, and they actually wanted me to come back, and I said it was too too hard on me to go across the world and train on this. So I've ended up um, sort of the premier trainer in this uh, because what what I do is I, I essentially have read everything ever published on this topic, and what I've been able to do is to kind of distill that down for what that means for frontline clinicians, what they need to do differently to make it work with this population. And the good news is we have enough research and experience now to where we can really help this clientele. 30 years ago, we couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. We could not say we could help them. Uh, when it was characterological, we said, you know, mental health doesn't yeah. treat that. Now we've got some really good models. Transference focus psychotherapy, dialectical behavior therapy, schema therapy is pretty good. So we've got some things that really can help them. Yeah. So that's the that's the really encouraging, you know, optimistic part of this. We're much better. We're, obviously, we're still not. It's not real efficient. We can't help. We can't treat everyone. But right. you know, in in medicine, you can't treat every condition well. But yeah. can we help most of them? Yeah, we really can. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's wow. fantastic. I, you know, I, I think this is a subject that most professionals are, you know, looking for some guidance in. But I also think sometimes family members, you know, we were kind of jesting yeah. here at the beginning, you know, like we all have a little bit of someone in our family. I actually have a training called how to help someone deal with a personality disordered person. Because a lot of the times in our practices, what we get are the family members coming in and saying, you know, my dad's driving me crazy. I'm married to someone and I don't understand them. Right. Uh, one of my children is doing all this stuff and I don't know what to do with it. <clears throat> so a lot of times we end up being the coaches for the people in these people's lives. And because the statistics show <clears throat> that personality disorder is the most common mental health condition. It's 15 to 19% of the population. That's one in seven or one in eight people. Compare that to psychosis, that's 1.5% of the population, or any severe mental health symptom is only 5% of the population. So when you get 15 to 19% with these conditions that people are vastly unfamiliar with, you get family members coming in, pulling their hair out and not understanding what to do. Because people with, with personality disorders do not respond in a typical way. And we expect other people to respond in the way we expect, and they do not. 
Mm-hmm. So we end up, you're right. It's not just treating the person and getting them better. It's the people around them as well. Yes, exactly. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I'm so impressed that you you found this line of work at the right time. Like it truly was, you found this need in mm-hmm. the field that you're like, oh, no I, got, one I just got, I got lucky. I hit yeah. on it right when um, it was being discovered. Mm-hmm. I mean, we knew by DSM-2 that there were patterns in people that were a problem and were deeply ingrained, but we didn't know that it was a unique condition unto itself. Mm-hmm. And so by my ending up there in 1984, when it had just become out in 1980, I got lucky to be on the ground floor and being able to be part of the evolution of, of the work here. So that, and it was just luck. It was just, I just yeah. fell into it. I had no idea. Mm-hmm. I wasn't, tr- when I was in graduate school, this, this, condition was not named there was nothing called a personality disorder so i wasn't trained on this so i had to go around the country and get trained by all the masters you know masterson and kernberg and all those people because i had no i mean i knew i had a knack for it but i didn't have any cognitive structure for understanding it so you're right i just got lucky and that's been the case with most of the masters here like um Marshall Lenahan, who developed uh, dialectical behavior therapy, did not set out to specialize in borderline. She set out to specialize in suicide, and she found that all of her suicidal clients fit borderline personality disorder, so she became a specialist. James Masterson was an adolescent psychiatrist, and he took over an adolescent group and found all these teenagers nobody knew what to do with, and then he discovered that they fit this personality disorder thing. So pretty much everyone here fell into it by accident, through a different route. Very few people set out on purpose to say, oh, I want to do personality disorders. And I just got lucky to be in on the ground floor. Yeah. You know, talking to other therapists as well as clients that come in who have family members who suffer from a borderline personality disorder or something similar uh, is what your, what are some basic suggestions or tools that you suggest to them about how to respond or cope with uh, someone else's. And we use all kinds of different terminology around here, like, you know, their, uh, their behavior or their, uh, their patterns or whatever it might be. Yeah. Well, the the term that we use that I use is that what people are dealing with, man, there's a specific structure to this. So the name sounds a little colloquial, but there's actually a structure. It's called, they make drama. Yes. They make dramas. Yeah. And technically speaking, a drama is an unproductive escalation. That is opposed to what we call problem solving, which can be escalated, but it's in service of solutions and adaptations. What happens with people universally with personality disorders is they create unproductive escalations. In other words, they cause upset and difficulties, conflicts, problems that don't lead anywhere productive. They just... Stir, stir up trouble. Create chaos. They create chaos. Yeah. In fact, one of the names that was proposed for borderline personality disorder in the DSM-3 was chaotic personality disorder because of the chaos they create. Mm-hmm. Now, they didn't adopt that because they felt like it was too colloquial and imprecise, <clears throat> but was one of the names proposed. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we teach people is that what you want to pay attention to is what escalates things. And a lot of what escalates things is um, emotionally laden conceptual language. 
And so one of the things that we teach people around people with personality disorders is to translate their response into neutral behavioral terminology. Because what that does is it pulls out the emotional intensity. So you have someone say, I'm only upset because they were mean to me. Okay, so the term mean has a lot of implication, doesn't it? Right. So the response is, I'm sorry to hear that. What did they do that was mean? So what I'm doing is I'm translating out of the, gee, I'm such a victim and they were so terrible and it's so awful and I can't stand it into what words did they use? And it takes a while because the person will say, well, they, they, they were just, you know, they didn't, weren't inclusive. Okay, they weren't inclusive. I understand. Well, what did they do that wasn't inclusive? Well, they just were ignoring everything. And how did they do that? Well, they didn't ask my opinion. Oh, they didn't ask your opinion and it hurt your feelings. See how different that is from they mm -hmm. were mean to me? Mm -hmm. So right, what right. we teach them to do is to listen for the emotionally escalated terms and then to translate those into behaviorally neutral terms. One of the things that the behaviorists discovered here, and they were kind of late to the personnel sort of party, but they've done a very nice job, is that the power is in pulling out the escalated emotion from the language that we experience. So a lot of what we do with personality disorder stuff is linguistic because it's a disorder of what's called the self. And the self is a linguistic entity. That's why it's called a self-concept. Mm -hmm. So we work with, work with conceptual and behavioral language to alter the escalation of the dramas. Mm -hmm. So, so I, Ryan, how are you processing this? And do you have any questions? Because I'm wondering if this is, I can hear it, but I'm wondering mm -hmm. if you need him to explain this a little bit more. Um. I'm I'm hearing this as someone who is, you know, say I'm in, in my position, hypothetically, I know someone who yeah. might have a personality disorder or definitely sure. has a personality disorder that I can uh, examine their use of language and my own to make sure I don't use uh, or we don't focus on the emotionally heightened words. Yeah, see, I think you said that very well, Ryan, in the sense that our urge is to respond in kind. Yeah. And to join in with that or to try to use escalated terms to stop them using escalated terms. Mm -hmm. And what I like to say in dramas is your innate response is probably wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, your automatic because this isn't someone functioning normally, but they're not symptomatic. So they don't look psychiatric. That's one of the hard mm -hmm. things about personality disorders is they're not considered psychiatric. They're considered personality. So you're right. Your urge will be, your natural instinct will be to respond in the same level of language. And it really takes a lot of cognitive effort to yeah. not do that because yeah. mm -hmm. it's not typical, ordinary conversation. And yeah. that's one of the things we have to teach people is you don't have usual conversations with people who have these patterns. And so one of the things also, Ron, I would do is it would depend on your relationship with the person, whether I would tell you what you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. If it's an emancipated relationship, let's say your boss, I might say to you, you know, they fit narcissistic personality disorder mm -hmm. and you have to deal with that differently. 
Now, if it's your wife, I'm not going to do that because I don't want you walking around thinking, oh, she's a narcissist. I want you to be able to work with her, you know, compassionately and yeah. as a partner. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, or if it's a divorce, I will. Oh, you know, they really fit borderline. Let me recommend something to read on that. But if you're if, you know, it's it's a, a current spouse, I wouldn't do it. So I would add on a piece of coaching if it was appropriate in terms of the actual thing so that you would have in your head a structure thinking, OK, when I deal with someone who has a narcissistic pattern, I'm not going to get empathy. I'm going to get contempt. So what I have to do is so I would give you that structure, but it would lead you to the same place, which is right. responding, not in kind to how they're responding. Right. Yeah. So obviously, depending yeah. on what person personality disorder we're kind of dealing with here will kind of determine the reaction. Like you said, you were talking about narcissistic exactly. personality disorder, how you might not expect empathy. Um, right. Are there other, like I'm, I'm putting a hypothetical in my head here of us maybe imagining that this is a loved one, a roommate, sure. a partner of some kind. Um, I feel like my natural response, if I were to be lashed out at, Mm -hmm. would be to tell this person how I'm affected by this. So I'm trying not to like attack them emotionally, but tell them maybe how their actions have affected me. Is that productive or is that it depends how you do it? Yeah. What we want to do is we want to use equally emotionally laden terms to show how it's affecting us. And guess what? That's participating in the drama. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you use neutral behavioral kinds of terms that aren't in keeping, sure, that's fine. But there's there's kind of a mythology in psychology that if we talk about how we're responding, it won't you know, trigger off stuff in other people. And that's absolutely just not true. Yeah. Um, because what they'll start saying is, well, I didn't, I didn't say anything for you to feel like that. That's not my fault you feel like that. Or they'll say the song like, this thing that really makes me crazy is, well, you're choosing to feel like that. No, nobody chooses how they want to feel. If we had choice about how we feel, that nobody would be miserable. Okay. So what happens is that Great. Some of, I'm sensing some emotion here from you. <laughs> well, you got I gotta get there are all these mythologies that have taken root in the popular consciousness that when you deal with personality disorder functioning, really make trouble mm -hmm. and really give almost a justification. For people with some people with personality disorders who mistreat other people, you know, they're not bad people. They're just wired up in a way to where they don't have the same abilities that, you know, you and I have. Mm -hmm. And so I get a little torqued out when people use them because they end up being justifications for misbehaviors. Yeah. So, Ryan, yes, I do think it's a good thing you're saying about how it affects you. But the how you do it is the whole whole key. Yeah. And the problem is we want to do it at the same intensity that they're doing it at. Because we feel like if we don't, then fill in the blank. We're not, you know, adequately telling them they need to know the degree to which blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Uh, so there's lots of justifications in our head. Yeah. Or it's awful just difficult to like not rise to that level. You've oh, been it absolutely like, is. agitated to a to a point that you're like, I I have to be the mature one. Come on. Yeah, we have a name for that personality sort of work. It's called your observing ego. Mm -hmm. And that's the part of you that stands aside and watches. Now, there's a big movement about mindfulness. And what that is, is developing the ability to have an internal dialogue 
where you're editing, where you're thinking about what you're going to say rather than just saying it. And what's hard about personality disorder individuals dealing with them, both treating them and like you said, working with a partner or loved one is that it takes a lot of mental energy to step back and say, okay, now what is the right way to respond here and and have all these feelings going on while you're doing that. Mm Mm-hmm. And rather than just knee-jerk reaction to those, which we can do with people, you know, in regular. I mean, when my best friend John and I go out, we teach at a martial arts school and then have lunch. I don't, I don't have a lot of thought about how to respond. I just respond. That's not the way it works here. Right, yeah. right. One of yeah. the things I was going to ask you, and I don't know, this is just something that I find works for me is kind of paying attention to the victim, persecutor, rescuer, tri- rescuer tri- triangle. And- that really is the make, drama. That's called the drama yes, triangle. Yes. And really trying my best to stay out of that right. triangle in a way that's on the healthy path. So I find myself really mindful of staying in the healthy part of that. So I, I, I'm careful not to persecute. I'm careful not to rescue. I'm careful to set boundaries so I'm not the victim. You know, there's that delicate mm-hmm. balance. And I, I just thought uh, I would mention that because I know that has been a real important resource that I utilize. Yeah, I actually am the one who brought that to personality disorders. I'm the person, I didn't create it. Uh, um, Stephen Cartman created it way back in the 70s, but personality disorders hadn't been distinguished. So we didn't know that's what he was describing. Mm-hmm. And I was actually the person who said the drama triangle is what describes what personality disorder people do. So a lot of times, what you're saying, I absolutely, I will teach family members that triangle, because it is a good conceptual structure. It's non-critical of the other person. And you get a sense of when you're caught and when you're not. And what we teach in personality disorders is what exactly what you're saying there, Julie, is by staying out of the drama, what it takes you to is the antidote to personality disorder. It's called problem solving. And so in your head, you're thinking, okay, now how should I respond? And how can we get this to some productive place of knowing what would help here. If we could wave a magic wand and cure every personality disordered individual, what we would do is we'd remove drama and install problem solving because that's the antidote. And that's what you're talking about. By thinking about the the roles of the persecutor, rescuer, and victim, staying out of those, the only alternative is to problem solve. And that's what we're trying to install. I mean, Marsha Lenhan in Dialectical Behavior Therapy and the training I was in with her said, look, all DBT is, is a problem solving program. They're out to block drama behaviors and install problem solving. And that's what you're doing in the structure that you're talking about. Yeah, that's right on the money. Yeah. Is that those, it's a triangle because it's those three points that you're you're mentioning? What it is, it's all dramas have to do with a switch in position. You start out as one thing and then you flip into another. For example, someone with what's called antisocial personality disorder does not jump on you and start beating you up. What they do is they come on to you and convince you that being involved with them will enhance your life. So they come on and rescue her. Like if someone's going to mug you, they come up to you and say, can I ask you a question? Can I ask you directions? And then when you're vulnerable, they grab your purse, they knock you down, what have you. So by describing those three positions called persecutor, victim, and rescuer, we can determine how their pattern works because they're going to start in one as a come on i call it a here kitty kitty and then they're going to switch on you and those three positions describe how it works so when you see someone 
<clears throat> adopt one of those, you know you're dealing with a personality disordered person and you're in trouble. Mm. Yeah, it's a really, uh, and Julie's right, it's it's an excellent model to think in. It really mm. clarifies things for people. So we, we do a lot of teaching people the drama triangle. And that's, again, I didn't come up with it. Stephen Cartman did, he was a genius. Uh, I've been at seminars with him and the man knows what he's doing. Mm -hmm. uh, and he was ahead of the curve since he came up with it before personality disorders were defined. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, so, Greg, what's your favorite personality disorder? <laughs> You're going to have to ask professionally because in my personal life, I'm not wild about having. But the one I'm best <laughs> at treating, the one I enjoy treating is narcissistic. Mm -hmm. For some reason, they just don't bother me. They yell at me and call me names and are contemptuous and demeaning and arrogant. And, and it's just, I think it's funny, you know, yeah. uh, borderline is the most you know famous and, and that's all Marshall Lenahan treats. Um, I can't do that all day long. I can certainly treat some, but their escalation, I get a little uh, rattled by if I have too many. I got what I call once one too many borderlines over the line. And I had to refer a patient because I was having panic attacks. Mm -hmm. But narcissists are, are wonderful, and I have really good results with them. Um, and we know a lot about treating them. It was originally thought they couldn't be treated until they were in their 60s and had enough debris collected in their life you know the third marriage is falling apart and they finally figure out there's one person there when it's always falling apart mm -hmm. but yeah. um it's not true and we have good models for treating them and i just i just love treating them i mean i've i've cured several and uh helped a lot of families uh with them and when they mm -hmm. can't be helped mm -hmm. i've helped people get out of the relationship um yeah. and so i like them uh it's fun treating dependents because they'll do anything you tell them to do you know, <laughs> you give them instructions and they follow it. You know, other ones mm -hmm. are oppositional. So they're kind of fun. Yeah. And then you can kind of wean them off you and get them to be more independent. So, uh, you know, I don't mind treating them. Uh, and I've had pretty good results with them. Uh, so those are my two. Uh, for those of you out there who don't know, there are, there are currently defined 10 different versions of personality disorders mm -hmm. that we have pretty good data are consistently seen across the globe. Um, and most of the research is on uh, four of them, antisocial, borderline, histrionic, and narcissistic. Uh, but they're not the most common. The most common are the avoidant, dependent, obsessive, compulsive. Uh, so what the way we think in this field it, is by which of the 10 does someone's pattern fits best? So when I use names like avoidant, independent, those are beyond the colloquial meaning of the term. They define a set of criteria, characteristics, and a pattern. And sure. so I'd say my my favorite to treat is narcissism. I'm really good at that. And <laughs> I, I've, I've treated some dependents. And a lot of people yeah. can't stand narcissists. They don't bother me. I don't know why. I'm not sure it's healthy. Yeah. Have you ever theorized why? <laughs> like, like, is it something of just a, a maturation of your own ego that like, you're like, I feel like very confident and sure of myself that I just kind of view their position as absurd? Yes, I do. Ryan, I think that's very well put. I do think that's part of it. The other part, that helps is when you see that basically all of their grandiosity is a form of it doesn't work it, it's it's smoke and mirrors mm -hmm. and what you see is that behind the smoke and mirrors is a great big empty hole mm -hmm. and so it loses its impact when you see that there's no substance to it 
-hmm. it becomes almost like a watching a play. Mm -hmm. It becomes like that. And so I do think it's, you're right. It's a certain maturation of not taking it personally. Yeah. Because I know that when they're yelling at me, this is just how they do it in life. And I know it doesn't work. And I know it has bad consequences. So it doesn't have anything to do with me. So yeah. I think it's seen that it's really just kind of the, the term we use is it's impotent. It just mm -hmm. doesn't work right. And when you see that, you actually have compassion for the 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 terrible internal state they experience. And sure. narcissism is the only diagnosis in mental health with a suicide risk not correlated to being depressed. So they're so empty that if you're not careful and you poke through it, they'll kill themselves tomorrow. Oh my God. Every other category, depression precedes it. Even in borderline, the number of criteria they meet for major depressive episode is correlated with the degree of suicidality. But narcissists are so fragile. Remember, it comes from our Narcissus, who gazed into a still pool and fell in love with his image. And then he spurned the love of Echo. Remember, the still pool, that image is just, it's thin. It's on the surface. You go underneath that, there's nothing there. Mm -hmm. So I think yeah. the thing that helps with narcissists is knowing that it's just all on the surface. It's all smoke and mirrors. It doesn't mean anything. You know, it doesn't work. And mm -hmm. so it almost becomes either tragic or comic to, to watch, even when it's directed at you. Yeah. 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 Have you ever heard the a phrase before, pseudo, like pseudo personality, like here is the here's the manifestation of what I've developed. And then underneath is really the authentic self. And so I'm kind of wondering if that ties into what you're describing, kind of like and not that we're not calling it a personality disorder, but here's my manifestation. But really inside my authenticity is that I really don't, I don't really have a, a concept of myself or uh, if, I don't know if that makes, am I making sense when I ask Oh, that oh I think, I think that says it very eloquently, actually. In the movie Tombstone, Kurt Russell's movie about wide open to shoot out the OK Corral, that by the way, is fairly historically accurate. There's an insightful exchange between Kurt Russell who plays, uh, you know, a wide herb and Val Kilmer in the role of his career plays Doc Holliday. They're discussing the uh, kind of kind of brains behind the outlaw cowboy gang named Johnny Ringo, played by Michael Bean. In dismay, Kurt Russell says to Val Kilmer, why does a man like Ringo do the things he does? And Val Kilmer says, a man like Ringo has a great big empty hole right through the middle of him. And he can never kill enough, steal enough, or inflict enough pain to ever fill it up. So what you're saying is absolutely accurate. What the problem with people with narcissism, we used to think it was a compensation for low self-esteem. Wrong. What we found out is that it is the surface over a bottomless pit. And there's nobody in there. Mm -hmm. And if you ever went therapy, when someone with narcissism starts to improve, develops observing ego and sees themselves and begins to describe their emptiness, it is blood curling. Mm -hmm. It is mind numbing. Marshall Lenahan says about borderline disorder people, if you don't understand that their suicidality is rational, given what it's like inside them, mm -hmm. you do not understand them. 
as I say about all the personality disorders, behind their feet is a bottomless pit where a self should be. So it's really much more severe and much more pathological than a compensation for something like low self-esteem. All of these individuals have a great, big, empty mm-hmm. hole inside them. And what in therapy, the danger is if you push too fast, too hard, you throw them into the hole and yeah. then they die. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that really like yeah. makes me have empathy for them. You know, I, yeah. I hear that and understand you know it's it's self-inflicted and like unseen pain and emptiness that you're just like wow yeah i i feel for what they're suffering i like how you said that right unseen pain and suffering because you don't see it because what like you said at the beginning about in terms of responding how we want to respond is to that surface level of we feel insulted or we feel attacked Mm -hmm. or we or we think they're being crazy and then you're just in in um, the the narcissist terms of narcissists paddling the surface of the water, you mm-hmm. know, and everybody's getting wet and you're not getting anywhere. So absolutely, and that and that's one of the things that we've discovered in the evolution of this area is that um, we can develop compassion for them, and that helps us develop compassion in them. Mm-hmm. Whereas you know, at, at a party. When you're talking to a narcissist and they're self-aggrandizing and they're they're talking about themselves for you know hours at a time, what you want to do is kill them. You know what I mean? <laughs> what you want to do is say, "Would you shut up? You're mm-hmm. a you're a self-centered jerk." You know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. sure, socially that's understandable, but when you look inside there, it's pretty horrifying. Yeah, it is, and they they have a lot of symptoms. I mean, a lot of narcissistic people have addictions. Mm-hmm. They have major depressive episodes. of borderline disordered people meet criteria for what's called dysthymia, which is long-term, low-grade depression. Borderline disordered people have a suicide rate 400 times the general population and 800 times the rate of women of childbearing years. Narcissists will kill themselves. They'll look fine one day. It's like the the poem that Simon and Garfunkel turned into a song, Richard Corey, about he runs the factory, and it's, Mm -hmm. it's... it's from the point of view of one of the employees and he wishes he would Richard Corey. And so the, the tagline is, so my mind was filled with wonder when the evening headline read, Richard Corey went home last night and put a bullet in his head. Yeah. So Ryan, you're absolutely right. Knowing what it's like inside there allows yeah. you really to work with them more level-headedly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you don't want one of these. You don't want one of these. These people do not win in life. It's kind of yeah. like recognizing that they're orless or whatever they want to call. Well, they absolutely and, are. Yeah. And, all and, they have is the drama. Yeah. The drama is what they cling to because that's all they know. They don't have a they don't have a contrast. They've yeah. never been another way. My saying to a narcissist, be empathetic, is like my saying to you, grab that piece of paper with the arm coming out of the middle of your forehead. You're like what? I have no sense of that. Yeah. They cannot think in alternate ways. That's one of the one of the characteristics of the pathology. They have one operating system and that's all they got. Mm-hmm. They're not flexible, they're not adaptive. That's all they got. And they got to do that everywhere. They're a hammer and everything's a nail. Mm-hmm. They're a saw and everything's a board. And yeah. life doesn't work that way. Did you know that a a, a personality disorder diagnosis is a better predictor of quality of life than any other factor ever studied. 
The number of criteria you meet for personality disorder has a perfect correlation or quality of life. It's the perf first perfect correlation we've ever seen in a mental health study. Yeah, so Ryan, you, you guys are you're right. So you get it. You don't mm -hmm. you don't want what's inside them. Yeah. And the way they come across is not how they experience life. Now, that's not to diminish that they mistreat people. Of course. Okay. Right, right. Behavior they is do. behavior. Yeah. They legitimately mistreat people, and we have to stop that. So we've got to yeah. stop that. So we have yeah. to have compassion for the people around them. One of the reasons I like working with them is when they get better, you help everyone around them who they're mistreating. Mm -hmm. So not only do you help them, you know, if you're treating someone with depression and they get better, that's wonderful. But if you treat somebody with narcissism or borderline and they stop mistreating people, you've helped all those people. Yeah. Now, what does the continued care look like? You've talked about treating someone yeah. of a personality disorder. Once you've maybe reached this level of, you know, they've recognized their own patterns, they have some tools to implement. Are they still on medication long term? Like what does their like long term care look like? Yeah, that's a real good question, Ryan, because that's been a big topic here. We can produce the effects. Can we maintain them? So I want to address one thing real quick. You said medication doesn't work at all. Mm -mm. They can be on medication. A lot of my patients are, but not for the personality disorder, but for the additional symptoms, depression, panic, um, okay. psychotic episodes. But in terms of touching the personality, we don't have any meds that do that yet for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. So- we have two distinct ways of working. We call it treatment and management. And we use those terms in the medical meaning, not the business meaning. Treatment means get rid of the condition. Like if you treat an infection with an antibiotic. Management means leave it, but keep it from causing harm. So right. when you're diabetic, you manage your diabetes by keeping your blood sugars even, but you're still diabetic. So what happens, Ryan, is that after assuming we have successful treatment, let's say I've treated someone who's narcissistic and they get it that they're the source of the problem and they get it that their cognitions about themselves are, are exaggerated and they get that they're just like everybody else. That's the hardest thing for narcissists to realize. Management means working with them in a way to maintain that. In other words, remind them of that because they can slip. So what we do is we do follow-up work, okay? Like um, if I'm treating someone who's narcissistic very intensely, I will probably see them twice a week. I mean, it's a big deal. Yeah. One, one that I had very good results with for a year and a half, I saw him three times a week. As they get better, we cut back twice a week, once a week every other week, once a month, mm -hmm. or we have family members in to work with them by then so that everybody gets on the same page. And when they screw up and a family member says, you hurt my feelings, they go, oh man, I did it again. Okay. Tell me how I did that. So I don't do it again. So we get people around them on the same, compassionately on the same page, because you're right. That is that is the key. Now, most of the treatments work pretty well to maintain. Some have trouble. Um, when we work with borderline disordered patients who they're the ones who tend to cut themselves up. You've heard of cutting yes, or, or make suicide attempts. 
good models can reduce that behavior by about 75% in 12 months. And that's a terrific statistic. But the problem is, if we don't do follow-up, almost 100% will relapse in, within 24 months and be back to baseline. Yeah. So what we find is that we have to maintain contact over the long term, even if it's episodic. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, because there has to be kind of a, a, a booster session for that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is something as serious and ingrained as someone's personality. Yeah. It's not just a virus that you get rid of. It's it's see that's you, th- right. that yeah. analog that analogy is even what I use. That's it's not a virus. It's not a bacteria. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's something constitutional. Yeah. See, that's why these are called characteristic conditions, not symptomatic. They were first called character disorders of our characteristics, but that was that sounded too moralistic. That's why we change it to personality. So think of the term personality. Person is what we call ourselves. The structure of the person we call someone's personality. So you're right. It is the way that they are. The way we say it is a symptomatic condition is someone what someone gets or has. A personality is the way someone is. Mm-hmm. And right. to maintain an alternate way, we have to do pretty intense treatment so they have an alternative because they don't have one yet. And then, like your very good question, we do ongoing booster shots kind of to maintain <laughs> that part. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That, no, it's a very good question, Ryan. That's right on the money. Well, thank you. Awesome. Um, I'm curious. I have at least one more question on this topic because you mentioned, sure. um, you know, that it doesn't really respond to medication. Otherwise you're treating the other symptoms of it. Um, But I'm always curious with any of our professionals, their stance in the growing field of psychoactive, like assisted uh, therapy, be it like psilocybin, MDMA, is that anything that has any promising results for working with this population? Well, two things. Number one, uh, it's real preliminary. Mm -hmm. And so, no, we don't have any specific data. The, the personality sort of literature is kind of self-contained. And so getting other things involved, uh, like the, the mushroom treatments and stuff, in our field usually takes a while. So number one, we don't know. There are no data. So okay. it might help. Number two, scares me to death. Mm-hmm. This population is much more fragile than you think in terms of the way they come across. You know, someone with borderline disorder looks non-fragile because they're so intense. Yeah. You know, they yell and scream and it looks like there's all this inside them when you don't and you don't see the emptiness. You don't see they're on the edge. And so it worries me. The new things that, you know, Prince Harry talking about mushrooms and stuff like that. It worries me about working with, with this population. And I think when there is research, it needs to be done incredibly carefully. Mm-hmm. For example, one of the things you'd find in this population, you find some PTSD, mm-hmm. post-traumatic symptoms, because some of them are mistreated, not all of them. And one of the treatments for that is called exposure therapy. And that's only safe to do when they're in the hospital. You do that on an outpatient basis, you can kill them. It's very tricky. Now, people yeah. who are good at it, like Marshall Lanahan, are geniuses and masters of it. I won't do it. I think it's too dangerous. So I think that doesn't rule out the possibility of what you're saying, that being ending up being helpful. Uh, but it scares me a little bit. 
And yeah. I think we have to be very careful in our research on it. I think it's worth looking at, but you're going to have to do it in a very controlled medical right. environment with a yeah. lot of support. Most definitely. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I mean, I hope it does personally because we got no chemicals to work yet. And if they did, I, I'd shout it from the rooftops. I'd love it. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. I appreciate all the information that you're giving. Oh, they're a great, great questions, listeners. you guys. You yeah. guys are obviously fairly savvy. You've looked some of this out. <laughs> these are never, these are more never done any of questions. this work as a professional. <laughs> no, I dropped out of middle school. I don't know. Yeah, this is just off the <laughs> off the top here. <laughs> yeah, you guys. <laughs> these are more insightful questions I get from, from some professionals, and that is not a put down. It's just yeah. that nobody gets trained in this. Like mm-hmm. I said. There are half a dozen of us in the world that train in this. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's great that there you guys are out there. I appreciate that that we have this information. I love doing it. Yeah. Listen, mm-hmm. I, I've never found anything as satisfying as when one of these patients comes in saying, I want to kill myself. And by the end of treatment, they say, I'm glad I'm alive. Mm. I mean, what's awesome. better than that? Yeah. yeah. What's yeah. better than that? Yeah. You flipped it. Wow. My, my my spouse has been threatening to leave me for years, and now they say I'm I'm their magic person that they want to be with forever. I mean, what's better than that, huh? Yeah, yeah. There's nothing better than that. That's why I do this work. Yes, we fail a lot, but when we succeed, there's nothing better. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. I am so thankful for uh, everything that we've learned about this, and you know the great questions that you've been able to answer for us. Um, as we wind down here, there's uh, just a few more things, a couple of questions that we get to ask you that get to be maybe a little bit more lighthearted and off this topic just to bring us out before we say our goodbyes. Cool. Uh, the first of which is a segment that I like to call Get Psyched. Now, this is, uh, this is a little basic psychology trivia. So after we go into the weeds on the specificity of our topic... I like to bring us back to our basics and can we just answer some questions that maybe the layman's who are listening to this don't know the answers of. So do our professionals know? Cool. All right. So our first question is for you, Mr. Craig. Um, And I will (laughs) start this with a fill in the blank. And if uh, all these have multiple choice. And so I think these questions are going to be pretty easy. Oh, if you need multiple choice. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) If you need multiple choice, you can request it. Okay. All I've right. been set up here. <laughs> I swear, I swear, a, you're gonna laugh at how we'll easy help. these are. We'll help. Yeah, uh, you will not be abandoned. You will not be alone. No. Go ahead. We are here to Perfect. offer the support you need. <laughs> yeah, <Absolutely>. right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you got this. Uh, the first question of of my get psyched trivia is: What is the minimum degree for a school psychologist? In Texas, it's a PhD. Really? Yeah. Texas changed the law and defined school psychology as a specific professional entity. Hmm. And even us clinical people had to go through jump hoops to be certified as a school psychologist. Now, other states may be different. Some states, a master's is sufficient, Uh, but states are going to PhDs. Wow. That's good yeah, to know. You, so at least I you know. Call, yeah. I can't call myself a school psychologist in Texas. Wow. I'm a psychologist. I can't do it. Mm-hmm. How fascinating. At least you know, yeah, at least a master's. You know, yeah, at least in general, a, in most, most states, states. In most states, it's a master's. master's. Yeah, yeah, that's changing some, though. I think what? it's school psychologists are, and I think this is legitimate, by the way, 
I think they feel um, dissed and they feel like they don't get adequate credit for what mm -hmm. they do because what they do is very difficult. Mm -hmm. um, and so they're, they're trying to make it a more rigorous certification. So that's why sure. a lot of them are going to PhDs. But you're right, masters is in general, hmm. if you're not in Texas. <laughs> yeah, good to know. All right, uh, Mother, the next question is going to be directed to you. Um, this is according to Psychology Today. What is the modern average for marriages splitting apart? How many uh, years? We're, I can give you some choices. How many here, years married? How many years is the average for the marriage to split apart, according to Psychology Today? Oh, okay. So I'll give you the options here. Um, is it four years, two years, a year and a half, or approximately six years? It's the average length of it before it splits apart. Mm, I'm going to go with four. That's correct. Ding, ding, Good ding, job. Ding, ding, four ding, years. Nice. <laughs> I was trained as a marital therapist, and I didn't even know that. <laughs> I would have gotten that one wrong. Well, I was thinking like you know, two years is kind of like the infatuation stage, and yeah, then yeah. kind of the realization stage starts to happen, and then the devaluation stage. I'm sorry, I'm going on to the subject of <laughs> the <laughs> stages of relationships. Yeah. So, yeah, so I was doing my math that way. You're great. So, oh, very good. I'm yeah. impressed. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Our final question for both parties. Um, <laughs> and again, if you might pull this answer out uh, without a multiple choice, I'd be very impressed. But I can give you some <laughs> options if need be. In what year, in what year did the American Psychiatric Association remove homosexuality from the DSM, Ooh. declaring homosexuality no longer to be a mental disorder? Yeah, I remember it's 1974. Spitzer it's did it. Close. It's close. Yeah, it was in the early 70s because, uh, you know, they had the group take over the um, American Psychiatric Association meeting in D.C. and stage a protest. Mm -hmm. And uh, Robert Spitzer is the one who got it taken out. 1974 is what I remember. 1978. Greg was closest. Uh, 1973 is the answer I see. Three. Okay. Ding, ding, yeah. ding, 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 ding. Yeah. Wow. Spitzer, yeah. Spitzer, I uh, actually, Spitzer and I uh, uh, mm -hmm. collaborated on one of the studies for DSM-5, and I talked to him about that and what he wow. went through to make that happen. And it was awful. He had to fight the psychoanalyst tooth and nail to get that mm -hmm. taken out. Yeah. So mm -hmm. 73. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. How fascinating. That, yeah. That was his real claim. Well, you know, yeah. he's got he's got connections. So that's pretty amazing, I think. Yeah. Uh, when I asked yeah. this question, I was like, I, I wonder if you might know. Like that's yeah, yeah. sure enough. Wonderful yeah. curiosity yeah. there, yeah. kid. Yeah. Great yes. job. See, you guys got like all of these right. Close Basically, we're, we're so close. Very <laughs> <laughs> right, good, Chris. Ryan. I appreciate that. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Of course. And as always, for passing the quiz, you all get to keep your degrees and continue practicing in your fields. Oh, my relief knows no bounds. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, Greg, uh, there's only one more question I need to ask of you. Um, oh, besides something my mom likes to ask as well. I know you, uh, you're you an author. Um, mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. we, we do like to ask if there's resources you might recommend to our, our listeners. Well, sure. Let me give you a couple because they vary. Um. Probably the best book on all the personality disorders for uh, lay audiences called um, 
again, the fatal flaws. The subtitle is, are you ready? Navigating destructive relationships with people with flaws of character and personality. It was written by one of the uh, people who ran Menninger's uh, personality disorder program named Stuart Udofsky. Y-U-D-O-F-S-K-Y. And it's quite a good book and it's very readable. It's a little technical, but it's pretty accurate. And Yudovsky is one of the luminaries in my field. So mm-hmm. I think that book is very good. Um, if people are interested, a lot of people are interested just in borderline because that's kind of the most florid. Uh, the best book about that is called Sometimes I Act Crazy. It was written by Kreisman and Strauss. They wrote a very famous book in the 80s called I Hate You, Don't Leave Me, which is a great title, but the book was preliminary. It wasn't that great. Um, it made some, made some mistakes. Um, so I think that's a pretty good book. And I'll, pr- I'll promote one of my, a couple of my own. I have a book on Amazon. Uh, it's on its second edition. And why it's on Amazon. It's on its 20th printing called Power with People, How to Handle Just About Anyone to Accomplish Just About Anything. And that right. grandiose title <laughs> is just that it's a model that, gives um flexibility and adaptability of how to well, like we we're talking about thinking about how to produce the best outcome with whoever it's yeah. it's not categorical it's not about pathology i've got a chapter about personnel source but it's kind of an afterthought um and i think that's a good book just for general relationship and people handling and i'll give one one promo promo you can cut this out if you want um <laughs> i am uh just finishing a spy novel series <laughs> I'm writing fiction and it's coming out on Amazon next month. The first one is called Central Intelligence Bureau, The Shrink, the Chip, and the Spy. And it's about a psychologist who has a microchip in his head who can hear other people's thoughts. And he works for an intelligence agency. So it's wow. all this drama about him being hunted and all this stuff. So I'm trying my hand at fiction. I've actually written 10 books, but most of them are in for the trade. I, yeah. I wrote the, the largest selling frontline clinical manual on treating personality disorders. So most of them yeah. are that, but, but, and I have one other book in the popular press called shrunken heads about graduate school. It's called yeah. the insane, the profane, the profound on the road to becoming a psychologist. It's a wild tale of how crazy graduate school was. So yeah. it's really offensive. It's funny. Yeah. Stuff, but it's offensive. Yeah. So, that's yeah. Cool. So anyway, I'll, I, you can cut all that out if you don't want so. No, <laughs> no I think it's cool. No, I'm, I'm excited to read your spy novels. Oh, the spine of, oh, oh yeah. Oh, they're, they're really good. I mean, I've got Apache helicopters, cruise missiles. I got yes. NORAD in there. I mean, yeah. Nice. And it, and it has well, a his, couple of, his background working with personalities or he should have some really great yeah. frames of reference in this. Yeah. It's <laughs> clinical meets Tom Clancy. I can't That's wait to exactly read it. That's exactly right. Yeah. 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 I, got yeah. A, I got a psychopathic receptionist and keep trying to sit just the main character and he's like you kill all your boyfriends why would i you she said no i killed two of them and they deserved it you know <laughs> sorry uh, anyway That's all right little yeah. teasers um yeah. yeah thank you for those i know we've mentioned uh your book before i think it was in our conversation with alan mm. godwin that we, oh, yeah. I think alan, we mentioned alan wrote a very good book based on my model yeah yeah he yeah. took yeah. the model i used and wrote a very good book and does very good seminars but he took it and really yeah. really ran with it yeah 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 he's yeah. a great guy isn't he yeah he's yeah cool. he said he you really were a is. great guy too so oh, I, yeah mutual you guys admiration. have been fun <laughs> <laughs> so glad you think so. off see you're that's good yeah hey. well we uh we we try to have fun you know and yeah we're kind yeah, of this is very cool 
I never, yeah, I've hey, never we're available. You want to book, uh, book us to join for your lectures? You know, we could do some warm up. I, yeah, I'll get you to it'll be ringers asking to set up questions, you know. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's just one more question we have for you. This is our little takeaway. Um and uh and that's if you have a mantra or a motto or philosophy. Yeah. There's a difference between doing things and getting things done. Yeah. Okay. And usually the distress people experience in doing anything is they're trying to get it done. Mm-hmm. And so the phrase that we use is do it now. Not like not procrastinate, but do what you're doing. Be in the moment. That's kind of the mindfulness part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, you know, the Nike saying, just do it. What people misunderstand about that saying is they think, well, go ahead and exercise even though you don't want to. That's that's not the meaning of the term. Just do it means don't try to get it done. Just yeah. be doing it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Be doing it. Be in I mean, that's now. what we have to do in therapy. Yeah. I yeah. can't be, be with now. a patient and have my head think about what I'm going to cook for dinner. You know what I mean? Right. And we yeah. do that a lot. So just be doing it. That's cool. good. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. It's applicable. Mm-hmm. I like that. Well, thank you so much. Hey, my really pleasure. Enjoyed you guys having you fun. here. Well, you are too. You're super fun as well. I and enjoyed it. Really, um, for me, getting a better understanding of how you come from a very compassionate and seeing past the pathology. I'm using mm-hmm. a fancy word here, but, no, but that's right. That's, that's seeing past that pathology, yeah. you know, that behavior, and then really understanding what's going on inside. And I think that's just wonderful here. Yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate your humor and your candor about all of this. Yeah. It's, it's, it's great that you obviously have found your strength and your, your niche in this and a pride in it really. And I I like that Mm -hmm. you take pride and you're like, I've, I know I can do this and I found, Oh, I'm very, Oh, I'm very good at this. You know, I'm not good at much in life. I'm kind of a one trick (laughs) pony. But I'm yeah. good at this. Right. You, <laughs> you know it. what you know, and you know oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I love when people try to challenge them. I say, I can quote the study, the date, when it was. You can't yeah. one up me on this. You can't on yeah. everything else in life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not on this. And you did accept well, that for one of your first, if this was your first podcast appearance, uh, huh. you were an exceptional guest. Oh, I appreciate yeah. that. You, well, you did guys a good job. It, hey, you guys made it easy. You guys made it easy. <laughs> We're so glad. All right. I appreciate it. I hope I hear from you again sometime. Or we'll do you have yeah. anything come up and want to? I'm always happy to work with you too. We wow. appreciate that. Well, thank yeah. you. That's yeah, been fun. Thank Amazing. you very much. And part of, you know, when I do online seminars, I don't get to talk to the people. I yeah. just lecture and then there are written questions. And I I prefer like this. This is much yeah. better. It's like totally. being with you guys. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. This has very been a cool. joy. Uh, all right, I'll let you go. I keep talking. Shut me up. That's right. Oh, that's right. When I get going, shut me up. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me to well, stop. <laughs> I'm a walking compendium of useless information. Tell me to shut up. All right. Well, you, you take it easy. Thanks Thank again. you, guys. Nice Thank you, great Greg. You, More you with too. You. Thanks. Good luck. Until Thank next time. On how you guys are doing, okay? Send me an email occasionally yeah. about how you're doing. Oh, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Good. Yeah. New pen pal. All right. Yeah. Totally. All right. We'll see you guys another time. <laughs> okay. Bye, right, Greg. Take care. So, Ryan, I was just uh, 
wondering if you had anything else you wanted to discuss here while we're wrapping up about what we just discussed. Yeah, um, I think I'm confident that I'm not a narcissist. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> no, but that was a, a great conversation that flowed. And Greg, uh, Greg is a, a fun, a fun speaker, mm-hmm. a conversationalist. Yeah, I definitely. Yeah, I definitely took away the primary thing here for me was to take away is really his ability to go past all that surface stuff and really start to work underneath that. And I and I am reminded of times when I've worked with uh, personality disorders where it once I did talk about that or discuss it with them about their behavior and really kind of talk about what I also wondered about what was happening underneath all that. Uh, it's interesting. It is interesting. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Great guest. Yeah. Well, I hope that uh, our listeners also appreciated this uh, topic and can mm-hmm. have some takeaways as well. And uh, and then be able to go out in the world and hopefully have a more positive impact on the people we're interacting with who are suffering from this condition. Yep. Yep. As always, this is just kind of my takeaway is like there's empathy. There's empathy for this population and for everybody. Mm-hmm. And so let's continue to be good to those others and to ourselves, guys. That's correct. And cool. as usual, I appreciate being with you, Ryan, and mm-hmm. I appreciate our audience. Yeah. And I hope and you I all love have you. a and I love you too. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Take care, everybody. Bye guys. Until next time. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to Therapy with My Mom. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can best support us by reviewing and downloading the episode on whatever platform you listen on. Tell your family and loved ones about the show, and don't forget to follow and engage with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Therapy with My Mom. You can also email us at therapywithmymom at gmail.com with any topic suggestions or stories you might want to have shared on the show. Great job, Ryan. Thanks, Mom. <laughs>